You are now listening to a Providence Community Church podcast. For more information, please visit ProvidenceTX.org. If you do not have a Bible, you can um, see one underneath a seat around you. And if you don't own a copy of the scriptures in your home, please take that Bible with you as a gift from us today. So if you could go ahead, if you're able, and stand with me for the reading of God's word. Again, this is Exodus chapter 6, starting in verse 1. Hear the word of the Lord. But the Lord said to Moses, now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh. For with a strong hand, he will send them out. And with a strong hand, he will drive them out of his land. God spoke to Moses and said to him, I am the Lord. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty. But my name, but by my name, the Lord, I did not make myself known to him. I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, the land in which they lived as sojourners. Moreover, I have heard the groaning of the people of Israel, whom the Egyptians hold as slaves, and I have remembered my covenant. Say therefore to the people of Israel, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from slavery to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God, and you shall know that I am the Lord your God, who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians." I will bring you into the land that I swore to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give it to you for a possession. I am the Lord. Moses spoke thus to the people of Israel, but they did not listen to Moses because of their broken spirit and harsh slavery. So the Lord said to Moses, go in, tell Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to let the people of Israel go out of his land. But Moses said to the Lord, behold, the people of Israel have not listened to me. How then shall Pharaoh listen to me, for I am of uncircumcised lips? But the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron and gave them a charge about the people of Israel and about Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to bring the people of Israel out of the land of Egypt. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Y'all can be seated. Morning, everyone. Hope you guys are doing well today. Uh, If you don't know me, my name is Corey. I'm one of the pastors here at the church. And as I always try to do before we get started, if you are a a guest this morning, whether it be a first-time guest or maybe you've been here quite a few times, I want to welcome you. Thank you for making us a part of your morning. Our hope uh, with guests is always that that when you are here, you will see that we make much of Christ. And and in that process, you'll want to join along with us in in covenant membership and doing what we say we're doing every day, which is making the gospel unignorable in the communities where we operate. So uh, that is what we're here to do this morning. And and I can't help but take a second before we get into the text that that Jenna just read to, um, to address with you as a congregation this morning some of the things that that we have seen going on in our world this week. I think we are, I'm coming up on 40 years old. I know that's not a ton of experience, but it's a little bit of life lived. And I can tell you that maybe it's my stage of life, maybe it's where I'm at, maybe it's the circumstances in my life, but I don't ever remember, I don't ever remember carrying the level of concern about a foreign conflict that I have now about the one that we have seen happened this week. And um, I've told you guys, those of you that have known me for a while, have been very honest about who I am. I'm, I always say it's kind of a joke, but it's true. I'm just a dude, right? I'm not, uh, I didn't finish college. I didn't go to seminary. I'm, I'm just a guy that uh, the Lord has blessed. And, and, but, and I, so I don't have any 
um, expertise in the, in the geopolitical things that are going on or, or any of that type of stuff. But what I can tell you is that I, I have experience as a father. I have three kids. I have an 11-year-old, uh, 11-year-old son this week that came in and sat down and uh, started asking me questions about this thing because he had been to school and he was hearing things at school and he was scared. You know, I, I know what that feels like. I know that some of you are in the same, same situation. I know what it's like to have my 11-year-old son in the midst of that conversation look at me and say, Dad, you know, you've always told me that, that God is good and God loves everyone. And if that's true, then why is this happening? I know what that conversation feels like. And that, that stuff is heavy, man. It's heavy. I know what it feels like this morning to come in and know that, that this, was, this was in front of me and, and drive across the bridge and get an alert on my phone that said that Russia had announced that they had gone, taken their nuclear arsenal into the readiness position. I don't know what that means, but I know that it's not comfortable. It doesn't feel good. And I'm, I'm thankful to, to Brendan this morning for, for kind of kicking the door in on this conversation because uh, I know that, that many of us are struggling with these emotions, whether it be fear or anger or sadness or grief. I've got a, a guy that... Uh, was my next door neighbor. He moved in when I was five, and we've been friends forever. We were roommates for part of the time that, that we were in college in Beaumont at Lamar who married a girl whose parents were um, Ukrainian immigrants to the United States. And I know what it feels like to watch him through, the, you know, through social media, good, bad, or indifferent. You get to see a lot of these things that typically you wouldn't have um, access to, to watch him openly discuss what it's like for his wife to sit with her parents in Beaumont while they attempt to make contact with family members that are still in Ukraine, that are in, in places where, the, where this conflict is, is happening. I know that those things are real, and those things are in front of us this morning. And, and before we even attempted to, to get into the subject matter before us, I wanted to take just a second and, and steady us this morning. If you're like me, and if you are struggling with this or dealing with it in whatever, whatever way it's on your doorstep. I don't know. It's different for all of us, right? But I, I want to take, take just a second to remind us that our God is not asleep. He's not asleep. He's not indifferent. And we can trust that his purposes will prevail in this situation, whatever that is, that we are confident in knowing that he is not asleep and he is working all of these things for his purpose. And it is, the scripture tells us, for, for his glory and, and for our good. And here's, here's another thing. That, that, that's one perspective that we should hold, but we should also never relinquish the perspective and the belief that he is also capable of changing the hearts of even the most brutal, evil leaders on this planet. And that that is within his Sphere of influence to, to change hearts and to stop it now if he wills that it would stop. I think, I think we, we lose that sometimes. Court and I had a conversation a long time ago. It was a year or so ago, whenever it was. And, and we talked about how incredible it would be to one day see our leaders here that we believe are far from God come out and change course because they had come to know the Lord. We... I speak for me. I forget that that's possible. 
And it is. It's possible in this situation. It's possible in ours. And, and while, while what's going on is a situation that deserves our attention, even more so than that, it deserves our, our prayers. It deserves our time on our knees petitioning the Lord to do what we know he can do, even though we also know that he's going to do what he wills, right? There's this mysterious way that those two things work together. We see it in Scripture. We see it in our lives, and we can't, we can't deny either one. So what I wanted to do this morning was just take a second to steady us and then, then lead us, lead us in, in prayer this morning regarding this situation and, and what we're going to get into in the text this morning because we believe, we truly believe here that God hears the prayers of his people. And even more so than that, we, we truly believe that, that God will prevail in all these situations. So if you'll take a moment, let's, let's pray, and then we'll jump into the text. Oh, Lord, we, we, we submit ourselves to you this morning. God, we, we submit ourselves to your, to your leadership. God, we submit ourselves to your will. God, even in situations that, that seem as though they are out of control, and outside of anything that can be influenced by, by us here in Atascacita, Texas, God, we, we step forward and, and we lift our voices to you and we, we ask you to be, to be our God. God, to be God in this situation, Father. I, I know that this room, each individual person, God, what we see going on in the news, what we see happening um, elsewhere, God, what we see happening here in America, Father, the the, the different emotions and the conversations and the situations that we're finding ourselves in, God, we know that the answer to all of those things is you. Father, you, you, are, you are the answer, Lord. And we, we ask you this morning, Father, to bring, bring peace. God, bring, bring peace, Lord. We ask that you would, you would change the hearts of the decision makers, Lord. Those that those that, that are about evil, God, those that are about purposes that do not reflect your character or your will for your people, Lord, we ask that you would change those hearts, Father, that we would see, we would see something miraculous happen in this situation and that through that, my God, that you would, you would make yourself known to, to legions of people that may not, may not know you today. Father, we also, while we pray and we hope and we believe that you can, Lord, we, we also submit ourselves under your will, God, and we ask that you would, you would comfort our hearts, God, you would steady us, you would help us to, help us to be faithful to you, God, in, in trying times, Lord, God, that, that we would believe that, that you, you are for us, Father, you are for those of us who, who belong to you, my God. Father, I just pray that, that this morning as we, we jump into the text, as we continue to, to work our way through the book of Exodus, that you would just make yourself glorious. God, that, that through an imperfect messenger, God, that you would, you would show yourself to be the perfect one, God, the one that is worthy of all of our praise and all of our honor. And, Lord, we give that to you this morning. We pray all these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. All right, so uh, as Jenna said, we are continuing through our series in the book of Exodus that's called Out of Bondage. And, and through that, our hope is that we would learn more about the character of God through the story of his deliverance of the people of Israel from Egyptian slavery. So that is 
that is the end of what we're hoping to get out of all of this time that we're spending here in the book of Exodus. And Ty did a great job last week. He, uh, we looked at Moses and Aaron when they originally had approached Pharaoh in the name of the Lord and, and demanded that he let the Israelites go, right? He demanded that, he, that he, they release them for three days so they could travel into the wilderness and they could uh, sacrifice to the Lord. And, and, you know, as probably could have been predicted, Pharaoh was not necessarily happy with that demand initially, Right? And he not only doesn't let them go, but he increases their workload. He increases their burden. He, he commands that they must gather their own straw for brick making rather than have that straw supplied for them. And by the way, it, it, even in adding that extra work, he doesn't change their quota. They're still required to make the same amount of bricks each day, even though he's added this, this extra burden on top of them because the scripture tells us he was sure that they were asking to be freed because they had too much idle time on their hands, and making them busier would, dis- would ensure that their desire was squashed. So I told you guys a while ago that I'm, uh, I'm you know, I don't, I don't work here full-time at the church. Those of you that are getting to know me, I, I have a, a job in the secular world, I guess you'd call it, in oil and gas. I work for ExxonMobil. And for a lot of years prior to the position I'm in now, I was an operator at a facility in Mont Bellevue, an underground storage facility. And if you know anything about the industry, you know operators. We work a rotating shift work schedule. It's called the DuPont schedule. And you are in the facility for 12 hours, and then you go home. You have a relief. And then you're, you come back again 12 hours later. And this, you work days, you work nights, you work weekends. And one of the things that, that we had, and we still have, the guys that work for me now still have, we had, had a kitchen at our facility. Because you work that full 12 hours, there is no, like, designated lunch hour where you can leave the site and go, Go do whatever. You just kind of eat whenever you can fit in your, your time to eat, right? So there's a kitchen where you can cook your food and you can eat and whatnot. And I remember back years ago, we, we got a new supervisor at the facility, and I remember our stove went out. It just stopped working one day, and that was a tragedy, absolute tragedy in, in this situation. And I remember one of my coworkers going to the new supervisor at the time and saying, hey, man, we need a new stove. Like, well, we're really having problems cooking food down here because our stove doesn't work. And his response was, if you guys have time to cook, then you don't have enough to do. And as I was uh, going through that last week, that, it hit me. I thought, man, that is, that is such a relatable thing for me because I remember thinking, man, like, we're here. We're stuck here. We have to eat, I think. I mean, maybe I don't. I could probably go a little bit of time without eating. But nonetheless, it wasn't like we were asking for an Xbox. We were asking for a stove because we don't get a lunch break and we'd like to cook. And that was, that was his response. And in the same way here, we see Pharaoh respond to Moses and Aaron and say, hey, man, these guys are clearly idle because they have time to think about something other than, than making bricks and, and their servitude or whatever they have in front of them. Therefore, let's make them busier. So we see that that, that message gets relayed back to the Israelites. And what do they do? They blame Moses and Aaron for bringing a new burden upon them, right? They say, say to them, you have made us stink in the sight of Pharaoh, and now they want to kill us. So the Israelites interpret this as, hey, man, this extra workload, we're going to die, dude. We're going to die. And because they now think that we are, we're idle and we're not working and we're not doing the things that, that we need to be doing to accomplish the goal that, that they want us to accomplish, now they're going to heap burden upon us so that we may die. And this, this upsets Moses. He's very upset by it. He goes back to God, and we're t- I'll pick up where Ty left off last week. He says what we see in Exodus chapter 5, verses 22 and 23. It says, Moses, then Moses turned to the Lord and said, O Lord, why have you done evil to this people? Why did you ever send me? For since I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name, 
He has done evil to this people, and you have not delivered your people at all. So Moses goes back before God, and he asks him two questions. The first one is, why are you doing what you're doing? And then secondly, why did you send me? And I think if we're honest with ourselves, those of us who, who know the Lord and have been, been following the Lord and maybe even trying to do some things in our lives uh, for him or, or, or because we feel called to do those things, I, I would imagine that at some point or another, all of us have gone before God and asked these, these very same questions, right? So this morning, what I want to do is jump in at chapter 6 and, and spend some time looking at God's response to those questions that Moses goes before him and asks after all of these things happen to the Israelites. So I'll uh, jump right in in Exodus chapter 6, verse 1, and we'll start there. Verse 1 says, But the Lord said to Moses, Now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh. For with a strong hand he will send them out, and with a strong hand he will drive them out of his land. So in response to Moses' questions to God, I believe what we see here is a very strong answer back to him from God. Right, he tells Moses right there in verse 1 that what he is about to do to Pharaoh will not only cause him to let the Israelites go, but it will cause him to drive them out of his land with a strong hand. I, as I was thinking through this, I was thinking, it's, to me it feels like the difference between when I take my 10-pound Malshi poo named Maverick and I let him out in the morning for exercise, to go to the restroom, all the things that he does, I feel like the difference in what God is, is laying here is the difference between letting him go, letting Maverick go to do that, and when the stray dog gets in my garage and begins to tear up things that I don't want him to tear up, and I drive him out of the garage with whatever stick I can get my hands on in order to get him out of there. Both things are releasing that animal, whether it be my own or whether it be the stray in the garage. They're both being sent away, but one has a very different connotation. Right? And I believe that that's what we see God saying here. Not only will he release them, but he's going to drive them out very, very quickly and, and very, in a very strong manner. Right? So God spends a lot of time in today's passage that we're going to look at reassuring Moses and reassuring the Israelites. But here in the beginning, it seems like God is emphasizing to Moses very strongly that he is in control. And that Moses should be confident in the fact that God is in control in this situation. Um, Court and I have had the, the pleasure over the last eight or nine weeks of, of coaching our sons together in basketball and helping Micah and Jonas every other year are in first and second or in, you know, grades right above one another. And the way the basketball league organizes, uh, we figured out about a year ago that every other year they're going to be able to be on the same team. So we thought this is, this is really cool. Like we will, we'll coach this thing together. And, um, Unfortunately, we lost in the championship game yesterday, so my plan today was to come in wearing my medal and uh, kind of strut around and, and, and brag about that, but that's, I'm not going to wear a second-place medal in front of you today. But um, one of the things that I get in trouble with a lot from my wife is uh, Leah tends to get on to me because she says I am, I'm extremely hard on my kids when I coach them. I don't believe that I'm hard on them. They don't believe that I'm hard on them, but my wife does, uh, particularly in a basketball gym because it is... It's enclosed, right? And a football field's different because it's open air. You got a lot of space. Nobody knows. I think I'm a great guy. Basketball is closed and everything echoes, and I, I'm a loud guy. And one of the things that Micah does, um, he's a great player, great basketball player for, for a second grader, but when he gets uncomfortable, he will stop on the court, he'll stand straight up, and he'll start doing this, pulling on his fingers. And like clockwork, every time I will stand out and I'll say, 
Micah, don't just stand there and do this. Get ready. You know, because I want Micah to be ready for what's coming. If you're standing there doing this when your opponent has the ball, you're not going to be able to play defense very well. Right now, I'm not talking to Micah in that way because I'm mad at him or because I don't believe he's able to perform. I do that because I believe he has the ability to perform. And in those moments, I'm excited and I'm trying to emphasize to him, hey, prepare yourself for what's about to happen. You can't be prepared if you're on your heels jacking with your fingers because you're nervous. It's an impossible thing. And in this instance, God is forcefully reiterating the spectacular nature of his plans in order to open Moses' eyes to God's power and to remind Moses that God's chosen him to bring that plan to fruition, right? So I think it's very important the way that God approaches the answer to Moses' initial two questions in verse 1. And then from that point forward, God begins to remind Moses why it is that he can trust him to do what he says he's going to do. Look at verse number 2. We'll read 2 through 5. It said, God spoke to Moses and said to him, I am the Lord. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty. But by my name, the Lord, I did not make myself known to them. I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, the land in which they lived as sojourners. Moreover, I have heard the groaning of the people of Israel, whom the Egyptians hold as slaves, and I have remembered my covenant. So God begins his reassurance of Moses by telling him, saying, I am the Lord. It's the first thing that he says to him. Everything else that he's about to say, every other reassurance he's about to give is built on the foundation of who God says he is at the beginning of the statement. And here in verse 2, God reveals himself to Moses as the Lord and then says something interesting that, uh, that if you spend a ton of time on, you can, you can get yourself lost in the weeds. But he says here, he says he has revealed himself to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob as God Almighty, but did not make himself known by his name, the Lord. And like I said, I'll be the first to admit, it's, if you, you can go down the rabbit hole with this, you can get yourself lost quickly because there's a lot of disagreement between the commentaries regarding what the minor details of this mean and what God is, is trying to communicate here, but there is near unanimous agreement on the overall theme of what he's trying to say. See, the name God Almighty is translated El Shaddai, um, which is a name God uses for himself to emphasize omnipotence and control over all things, right? It's also an Amy Grant song from the early 90s. So if you were a KSBJ kid like me in the back of your parents' 89 Oldsmobile Cutlass listening to KSBJ, you can't hear El Shaddai without thinking of Amy Grant, right? But in this context, we're not worried about Amy Grant. It's a, uh, a word God uses for himself, or a name God uses for himself to emphasize omnipotence and control over all things. So when God says that he revealed himself to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob as El Shaddai, he was revealing himself as the one who was in total control and therefore could deliver on all of his promises. All of his promises he was making to them at that time, he was revealing himself as one who could and was able to deliver on those promises. But in this situation, with Moses, God is revealing himself as the Lord or Yahweh, right, or Jehovah, right, which is more, a much more personal name that's used in the context of God having a relationship with his people. So here, here, here's the crux of this. And the one thing I want us to understand, these two names do not cancel each other out. Because one is true, it doesn't mean the other is not. They are both true. God does not change 
in who he is just because he's referred to as a different name because the different names represent different ways that God has chosen to reveal himself to his people at different times, right? So the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, they knew El Shaddai. They knew the all-powerful, promise-making God. But Moses and the people of Moses would know Yahweh, the all-powerful, promise-keeping God. They would actually see the fruition and the action of the promise being kept. And that's the the significance of God coming to Moses and before he begins to assure him, telling him, hey, I am the Lord. And we will see that play out as we continue through this series. And here's the thing for us, the way this is applicable to us today, I believe this is an area where many of us struggle. And here's the thing, we may not even know that we're struggling here. We may not even know that we're struggling in understanding these, these different but yet equally important aspects of who God is, right? There's a lot of people at this church or in this area, people that we know that have a robust theological knowledge of who God is. So much so that some of you twist my brain into knots and I love you for it. I love you for it. I've never been one to become prideful or upset because somebody in the congregation knows more than me. That's great. I'm happy about it, right? But some of you, some of us are so robust in our theological knowledge of who God is. We know God. We know him to be all-powerful. We know him to be omnipotent. We know him to be a sovereign God who is in control of all things. And we truly believe that, right? And we live our lives as if he is that. But We can easily miss God as Yahweh if we fail to believe he can and will work miracles in our lives personally in the context of relationship with us. This is why some of us, and I say us because I've lived this and sometimes I still struggle with it. It's why some of us have struggled with praying after coming to grips with the sovereignty of God. We understand him to be sovereign, so it's very easy to fall victim to the lie that God's sovereignty negates the need for us to petition him to move on our behalf. I remember it was 2014, 2015, my mother uh, received a cancer diagnosis, and it was hard for our family, and I didn't handle it very well as far as, as, far as how I approached it, right? I really just kind of like a turtle, I went into my shell and just went into a protective position and acted like nothing was going on and just assumed everything was going to be all right. And by God's grace, it was, and it is, right? But I remember having a conversation with Butch Holmes. Some of you guys will remember Butch. Butch was a, is, a, is a powerful man who believes in the power of prayer. He believes in God's ability to move and to change circumstances. And I remember being at work, and I was outside, and it was late. I don't know why we were on the phone so late. And I said to him, I said, Butch, I'm really struggling with praying for my mom because I just feel like whatever happens is going to be God's will, and I want to be okay with that. And he rebuked me harshly. If you know Butch, you know what I mean when I say that I was rebuked harshly in that moment. And that's always stuck with me because this is, this is something that I struggled with. For us as believers, in order to truly understand who God is and what he means and how he's operating in our lives, we must know God both as El Shaddai and Yahweh in our pursuit of him, or we will miss very important aspects of God's character. There's very important aspects of his character. And that's how this, this whole concept applies back to us. God goes on to say, In verse 4, he tells Moses he's established a covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob to give them the land of Canaan, and he intends to deliver on that promise. There is no amount of action by Pharaoh whatsoever that would thwart the plans of Yahweh in this situation. None. He continues on in verse 5 telling Moses that he has seen the affliction of the people of Israel and he has remembered his covenant. 
You ever found yourself struggling, feeling like God was, was a million miles away? Maybe you're dealing with circumstances, whatever, whatever's going on in your life, and it feels as though God has forgotten you or forgotten the things that you are wrestling with. That's got to be what it felt like for the Israelites, right? All the years of oppression, all the years of suffering. And Moses shows up. He gives them a little bit of hope. And in the end, it just seems to have made their situation worse. The evidence is that the situation at this point for them has just been made worse by that. But in this verse, in verse 5, God is faithful to tell Moses that he is not far off, that he sees the affliction of his people. And much like we prayed earlier, he is not idle. He's not sitting by idle watching it happen. The same is true for us, guys. If you're struggling this morning, I want you to rest assured. I want you to hear what I'm saying. Rest assured that God sees your affliction. He sees it. He's not idle in your life. He's not far away. He's not silent. He's not too busy. He's not indifferent to your plight. He sees you, and he intends to act on your behalf for his glory. That is the intention of the Lord. He's there. He sees. He remembers his covenant. A few weeks ago, I I stood here, and I preached through the end of Exodus chapter 2, and it says there pretty much the exact same thing that the Scripture is saying here. Right, and I mentioned in that sermon that any time in Scripture when we're told God remembers something, that statement always, always precedes God taking action on behalf of his people. And here, once again, God's reminding Moses of who he is. He's emphasizing to Moses that he has seen everything. And God's informing Moses that he is soon to take action on behalf of those who belong to him. And this is done in a way that Moses might have hope and that he might take that hope back to the Israelites via a message from God. And that's what we see in uh, verses 6 through 8. Let's read those. Say, therefore, to the people of Israel, I am the Lord. I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will deliver you from slavery to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God, and you shall know that I am the Lord your God who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will bring you into the land that I swore to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, and I will give it to you for a possession. I am the Lord. So in verse 6, we see God transition from his reassurance of Moses, and then he tasks Moses with delivering that message of assurance to the Israelites, right? God gives him seven promises here in these verses that are bookended with two declarations of his name, Yahweh. This reminder on both ends of seven promises that he is the promise-keeping God and that they would know him as the promise-keeping God. He tells them that he will, he says, I will bring you out. I will deliver you from slavery. I will redeem you. He says, I'll redeem you with an outstretched arm. I'll reach out and I'll gather you up. I will redeem you with great judgment. He he says he will will avenge in that promise also. The great judgment will come on those who have have, um, come against the, the Israelites. He says, I'll take you to be my people. I will be your God. I will bring you into the land, and I will give it to you. So God gives Moses seven promises of salvation, seven statements of what he's going to do on their behalf. And listen, not one qualifying requirement from his people to earn their freedom. Not one. God is the God of covenant, and he intends to keep it regardless regardless of whether his people have ultimate hope and faith in what he says he's going to do. This is is really good news for us that struggle believing 
that God can do what God says he's going to do. God is a keeper of covenant. He is a keeper of promise. And and God didn't owe Israel these promises. He didn't owe it to them. He chose to offer them hope through the promises. He says, "I, I am Yahweh, and because I am, you can have hope. Now, you would think, you would think this would be very comforting news for the Israelites when it was delivered. And uh, Moses does deliver that message in verse 9. You know, things are looking bleak for them. But, hey, God's speaking again. God's showing himself active again. So maybe there should be some comfort that comes from this. Let's see how that goes. Go to verse 9. It says, Moses spoke thus to the people of Israel, but they did not listen to Moses because of their broken spirit and harsh slavery. So it didn't go very well. The message was not delivered in the way that I think probably Moses hoped that it would be received. They didn't listen, the scripture tells us, because of their broken spirit and harsh slavery. Translated literally from the Hebrew, it says they did not listen because of their shortness of breath. They didn't listen because of their shortness of breath. They were so pressed in their slavery that they could hardly breathe. They were incapable of attending to that which God had spoken to them. As I was thinking through this and trying to think, man, what, what would that be like? What, what is that like? I was reminded, and this is an imperfect um, comparison, but it's, it's the best one I could come up with. When I was, one of my many stops in college, which this sermon has really turned into me telling you guys I didn't do very well in college. So, uh, you know, if that's you, welcome aboard, right? But uh, one, of, one of the things that I did, I spent about three years at East Texas Baptist University, uh, Division three school in Marshall, Texas, trying to Attempting to play football there, which, which was fun. I enjoyed it. We had a great time. I had a, a coach by the name of Ralph Harris who was a, a great, great man of God, great man of character that ran his program in such a way that, that he, he built men of character in his program regardless of wins and losses. Great guy. He passed away about six months ago. It's a shame. He's a great dude. And one of the things that he would do with us on Thursdays after practice, our stadium was kind of built into a bowl, right? So the stadium came down, the field was up, the ground level was up here. And on either side of the stands, on, on the, particularly on the home side, there was about a 45-degree angle grass hill on both sides of the stands that went back up to, to grade, right, to ground level. And every Thursday after practice, he would take us over there, and we'd run that hill. We'd run up it, and then we'd walk back down. And this is the thing. You would think that coming down the hill would be uh, a relief. It wasn't because it was a 45-degree angle, and you're tired, and I was big, and I had to control my weight back down that hill. It was a nightmare. I hated it. Every Thursday, I was like, I'm going home. I'm out. We'd run this thing about 15, 16 times. He'd almost run us to death, and then when we'd finish, he'd bring us to the bottom of the hill, and he would start talking. And he expected you to put your eyes on him and listen and absorb what he said, and he would say, stop breathing. Put your hands on your head and breathe slowly and listen to me because he was giving us good information. And as I'm thinking through, like, what, what must it be like to not be able to receive a message because you are exhausted and shortness of breath? That emotion or that physical pain was brought up, and I thought through that. And, and I, wonder, I wonder for us today, how many of us here today cannot grab hold of the promises of God because we are absolutely exhausted? I think that's a real, that's a real thing that we deal with. I've been there myself. I think a lot of you that I've talked to have been there also. It's hard to grab hold of those promises because we're absolutely exhausted. I wonder how many of us are absolutely at the end of our rope due to struggling and our slavery to sin. We can't lay hold of God's promises for us because our spirit is shattered, right? Who knows? We all struggle with different things. Maybe, 
Maybe the struggle that, that you're having today is the sin of comparison, right? We live in an age, in the social media age, where I think one of the biggest threats to believers and to the church is this idea um, that of comparison in social media. It, it gives us such a, it's such an easy avenue by which to covet the life or the things or whatever it is that somebody else may have that we think that we need in order to be whole. Right? And what we don't see, the flip side of that coin, is that there's also the sin of feeling like everything that you do has to be posted and flowered up and looks good so that everyone believes that you are the person that you're trying to portray, that everyone else is jealous to. It's this vicious cycle, and I think, I think that that's killing a lot of us and weighing a lot of us down. We're working our fingers to the bone to try to keep up whatever it is that's being portrayed that's in front of us. Maybe for some of us, maybe it's a website we can't quit visiting. It's wreaking havoc in our marriage. And it's suffocating us. It's pulling the air out of our lungs. Maybe it's the sin of excess, whether that's with substances like alcohol or whatever or something even as simply as food, man. The sin of excess where we're eating ourselves to death because we're attempting to feel satisfied to reach some sort of satisfaction when we know in our heart, we know that God tells us that there's nothing in this world that's going to satisfy us apart from him. But yet we can't lay hold of that promise because we're so suffocated and broken by that sin. These are just a few examples, but it could be any number of sins in any of our lives that have strangled us to the point of unbelief and maybe even to the point of just wanting to be left alone. Like we often think like when we're struggling with sin, like what happens to people is they struggle, struggle, and then they go off on the deep end. Right? They run off, they just go crazy into the world, and they're living a destructive lifestyle. But the most destructive thing to the believer is the one that reaches the point where they just want to be left alone by God. They just want him to go away. Just leave me alone, let me live my life, let me be happy in the things that I'm doing today. Maybe we're there today. And just as God was never going to leave the Israelites in Egypt to continue experiencing brutal slavery at the hands of their taskmasters, I want to tell you this morning, God has never intended to leave us here alone struggling in our sin, ever. It's never been his intention for us. And why do we know that? We know it because he sent Jesus. Long before anyone in this room was born, long before anyone in this room had a breath in their lungs, our God sent the one that would redeem our souls. It's incredible, and he did that because he never intended for us to struggle in this way. Scripture tells us that for those of us who are in Christ, and I'll, be, I'll begin closing with this, tells us that there is no condemnation for us. Condemnation is defined as an expression of very strong disapproval or action of punishment. And that's an incredible truth if you think about it, think about what we know about God, lay that truth next to the holiness of God and God's desire for justice. And the only thing that allows us to live in that with no condemnation is the blood of Christ. The blood of Christ frees us from condemnation. The blood of Christ covers our sin and it empowers us to overcome in the name of Jesus. You see, the Israelites did not understand the links by which God would be willing to go to ensure his covenants would be fulfilled. They didn't know. They weren't aware. And truthfully, Moses didn't understand it either. If you move on down, you look in verse 12, generated earlier, but he protests in verse 12. He's asked to go back to Pharaoh after all of this assurance from God. Go back and once again tell him to let Israel go because I am the Lord. I am Yahweh. I am the promise-keeping God. And Moses' response is, man, Pharaoh won't listen to me. I'm of uncircumcised lips. He circles back to square one, the very first thing 
that he said to God that disqualified him from being able to deliver the message. After all of this assurance by God, he goes back to that because he did not truly understand the links by which God would go to ensure that those covenants would be fulfilled. And and I'll, I'll tell you today, guys, if you claim Christ as Savior and Lord, then at some point in your life, you did understand. At some point, you did understand. At some point, you experienced the grace of God. At some point, you knew the links that he had gone to to have you reconciled to him. And maybe, maybe you've forgotten. And my hope for you today is that today is the day that you remember. You're reminded of the links that God went to and will go to to ensure that all of his promises for you that we find in Scripture will come to fruition. Look at 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 20 through 22. Paul writes, For all the promises of God find their yes in him. That is why it's through him that we utter our amen to God for his glory. And it is God who establishes us with you in Christ and has anointed us and who has put his seal on us and given us his spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. Every promise given to us by God is fulfilled in Christ. Every promise given to us by God finds their yes in Christ. We sang it earlier, yes and amen. I thought it was great. I'm standing back there going, this is cool. (laughs) Great song selection, Brandon. We didn't talk about that. Um, For us, guys, for those of us who know Christ, there is no waiting for rescue. There is no holding pattern where we are sitting around hoping that God delivers rescue, much like the Israelites are doing. No, for us, rescue has come. It's here. It's with us today if we are covered in the blood of Christ. For those of you that have not confessed Christ as Lord, I want to tell you today, rescues come for you also. If you're under the sound of my voice and you, you are feeling, as the kids would say, some type of way about what we're saying this morning, right? Maybe you are, maybe you are or, or feeling convicted of some, maybe some of the sins we talked about earlier, maybe some other sins that are in your life. Maybe you, you feel as though it's, it's time for a change. I want to tell you this morning, that is God drawing you to himself. You didn't just wake up and come here this morning as a non-believer because you enjoy church. That would be insanity. You're here this morning because God willed that you would hear the gospel and that you would know that even in your state as an enemy of God now, that God intends to reverse that and change that and make you a son or a daughter. And he does it by the blood of Christ. That is for you today, your struggle, your toil, your lack of hope. All of those are covered by the blood of Christ. And I'll ask you this morning, will you choose to follow him today? If the answer to that question is yes, there's going to be elders on the side of the wall, both on the side of the room, on the wall, after we get done, that would love nothing more than to pray with you. Would love nothing more than to lead you in that decision and bring you into relationship with Christ and fold you into this family, this family we have here at this church that walks together, that struggles together, that prays together, that watches the world rage and puts our hope in Christ together. That's what we want for you. And I hope that that's true for someone here today. I want you to remember He is El Shaddai. He is Yahweh. And through Christ, believer and non-believer alike, he is yours. All right, let me pray for us this morning and we'll we'll get Brendan back out here. Father, I thank you for, for the gospel. I thank you that you have sent Christ. Lord, you have sent rescue, God, that we might live a life of no condemnation because of the blood of Christ. God, that we might, we might be sanctified, God, that we might be made more like you through the sacrifice of Christ on our behalf, Lord. We are so thankful for that, God, because apart from it, we are nothing. 
Apart from it, we have nothing, God. We're, we're, we're imperfect, Lord. We can't get it right. We just can't get it right, God. But through Christ, you have made it right. So thankful for that. Lord, I pray that, that anyone, anyone under the sound of my voice, God, that you, you are pursuing this morning, that you would, you would finish that today. God, that you would bring them into relationship with you. Lord, we, we continue to pray for the things that we see going on all around us, Lord. Here, abroad, the other side of the world, Lord. Fix our eyes on you and remind us, God, that the hope that you give us as believers is not just for us, Father. That is a hope that we must carry into a lost and broken world, God. While it's, it's great to have conversations about political things, God, or whatever it is we're seeing on social media, may those of us who know the Lord have each of those conversations seasoned with the gospel, Lord, as they go out. <laughs> keep, that, keep that close to our minds and our hearts, Lord. Father, I thank you for this morning. God, I pray that, I pray that we, would, we would leave here knowing you a little more than we did when we came in. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.